We're continuing our way through this, this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And I, I mentioned in the announcement time that today we're finishing up looking at the qualifications for leaders in the church. So last week we looked at the qualifications for elders, for overseers. Today we're looking at the qualifications for the, the other office of the church, the office of deacon. And then we're going to pause, look at four sermons in the, on the emotions of Jesus. And then the Sunday after Christmas, we'll, we'll pick up again, continuing through chapter 3 of 1 uh, Timothy. So again, uh, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 8. And this is also in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the offices that you've given to the church, the office of elder, the office of deacon. We thank you that you lay out so clearly the moral qualifications for these offices. And so, Father, we pray that you would raise up office bearers in Hope Church in your good time. Uh, but, Father, we pray that as well that you would use this passage to encourage each and every one of us uh, in this room to know how to love and serve you more. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife, Grace, and I uh, went to college in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Our school was the North Carolina School of the Arts, um, and its mascot was the pickle uh, because we didn't have any sports teams because it was a but mascot, but everything was the fighting pickles. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but in the same town, there was Wake Forest University, uh, which is known for their basketball team. Uh, and the, the, the mascot of, the, of Wake Forest University is the, the Demon Deacons. Uh, and I, I, was, I was looking up the, the Demon Deacons, how they got their name. And apparently it was uh, in the 1920s that they were playing, I guess what was um, at that time called the... Uh, what, what is it? The Trinity Blue Devils, which became the Duke University team. And the article called them the, the Deacon Demons. Um, and then I guess the name st st stuck and they ended up changing that to their mascot. And I always found it to be, it was, it's a school that was historically a Baptist school. And that, so that's why they called them the Demon Deacons, playing the Blue Devils. Um, and, I, and, and there's just a funny term, especially when you have the office of deacon within the church. And so I was thinking about that this week of how do you avoid having demon deacons within the church? Uh, and that's really what we're getting at here is, is what Paul doesn't want is demon deacons within the church, but he wants faithful, godly deacons to serve the life of the church. 
And so we're going to look at this today. And we're going to look at it under four headings. So we're going to look at the work of a deacon, the qualifications for a deacon, and then the promises for a deacon. And I think that all of this will help us as a church because we're a church that will, Lord willing, elect deacons in the future. So we need to know the qualifications of deacon, how to find true biblical deacons, not demon deacons. But then we also see here a list of moral qualifications that are true for deacons who will serve the church, but it's also true for each and every one of us, that, that the qualifications here aren't just for leaders. There's not a standard for leaders in the church and then for everybody else, but there is this standard that we're all called to, but it's just the consequences of a leader who doesn't live up to this, that they can have grave consequences for the life of the church. So let's dive into this together. First, let's look at the work of the deacon. And so look in your Bible at verse 8, and you'll see that word deacon, deacons. The Greek word is diakonos. And in the New Testament, the word can have three nuances depending on the context. So it can just mean servant. And that's probably the most basic meaning of the word deacon. It's a servant. And so you might read a passage like Romans 13, verse 4, where it says that the civil government is God's deacon, God's diakonos, for your good. And so it's saying that the civil government is the servant of God for our good to keep society together, to maintain order. That's not talking about the special office of deacon. The, the civil government doesn't hold the office of deacon within the church. But the word can also be more of a broad word for minister or ministry uh, that would be include both elders in the church and deacons in the church. So the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Of this gospel, I was made a deacon according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And so there, Paul, who is really serving more in the role of an apostle and an elder in the church, is calling himself a deacon. He's calling himself a servant of the church, a minister of the gospel. And he even later in 1 Timothy will call Timothy a diaconess of the church, a deacon of the church, meaning more that he is a minister of the church, not that he is serving in the office of deacon. So it can mean servant, it can mean minister, but then also it can have a more technical meaning of the second office within the church. Last week, we talked about the office of elder, overseer, and sometimes the scripture uses the word deacon to refer to this second office, this office of service. We see that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes to the overseers and the deacons of the church. And even here in our text, we see this functioning as an office where people are being tested first and then they enter into the office of deacon as opposed to elder, as opposed to, to overseer. And so that's the, the word here for deacon, for service. Now, our passage doesn't so much lay out the work of a deacon, more of the moral qualifications for a deacon, but we see this hinted at elsewhere in scripture. What is it that a deacon is called to do? And so for this, you can turn in your Bible, if you have it with you, to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Remember that, that the book of Acts is the history of the early church, laying the, the foundation after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And this is the origin of the office of deacon within the church in Acts chapter 6. And it's interesting that it actually doesn't use the word diakonos. It doesn't use the word for deacon, but the concept is rooted here in this passage of these, these men who are appointed to function as deacons within the church. So again, this is Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so you see what's happening here, that the early church is growing. This is after the day of Pentecost. They're adding thousands of people to the church in this period. And it's an encouraging time where there was the sharing of resources within the church. They were caring for those in need. No one had any lack. But then a problem arose in the life of this fledgling church. It says that the Hellenists, who were the, the Greek-speaking Jews, were being overlooked. The, the Hellenist widows were being overlooked in the distributions in favor of the, the Hebrew widows. And so this is a huge problem because on the, it's a racial problem. It's a ethnic problem. So there is this racial ethnic division within the church. But then also it's a problem because the church has a responsibility to care for the weak, for the marginalized, for the, for the widow. And so listen to what the disciples say then in verse 2. It says that the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so this responsibility for the widows was falling onto the apostles. So the time that they were hoping to spend in prayer, to spend preaching the word, to, to spend in the work of evangelism was being spent in meeting these practical needs of these widows within the church. And so they didn't just say, well, we're just going to focus on preaching and the widows can fend for themselves. But instead, listen to what they say in verse 3. They said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, so there's moral qualifications, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then flowing out of that, they lay their hands on seven men who they appoint to the, this initial work of the deacon, caring for the widows. And one of them was Stephen, who ended up becoming the first Christian martyr in the next chapter. But what we see here then in seed form is this idea of the, the office of the elder and the deacon within the church. That the office of the elder is focusing on prayer and the ministry of the word. Where the office of deacon is focusing on meeting practical needs within the life of the body. Practical needs within the life of the church. And this is really, if you think about it, the twofold calling of the church in the world. Because we have a calling as the church to preach the gospel, to preach the word of God. And there's actually a centrality of the word of God and the preaching of the word of God within the life of the church. In chapter four of this letter, Paul's going to tell Timothy, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And then a few verses later, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's not saying to Timothy that he's going to be saved by works, by by preaching, but he's saying that the gospel that you're preaching, Timothy, is the gospel that is going to save your soul and it's going to save the soul of your hearers. So dedicate yourself to the teaching. That humanly speaking, God uses the, the proclamation of the gospel, the teaching of the word of God to bring people to faith, to give people eternal hope. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but how are people to hear without preaching? And that's part of the reason that the apostles saw that we can't sacrifice the ministry of the word to deal with these temporal matters within the church, that there's a centrality of teaching and preaching. But that's only part of the calling of the church, because another part of the calling of the church is to care for practical needs within the body, within the community, to serve those who are in need. And this is where the, the office of the deacon comes in. Because it says in James chapter 1, verse 27, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so very much at the heart of true religion is care for the weak and for the marginalized. And not just in word, but in deed also. And this is what you see as well in the book of Matthew chapter 25, where you're presented with this vision of the, the end of time, of the final judgment, the, the separation of the sheep and the goats on the last day. And you'll remember that when people are brought before the throne of judgment, the, the judge lists the way that they serve the poor and the weak and the marginalized. And, and then it says that they will respond. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And so that's not saying that we're going to be justified, declared righteous on the last day by our good works, by our service to the poor, to the weak and the marginalized, but yet it's saying that, that one of the chief fruits of a true living faith is going to be the way that we treated those who are on the margins of society. And so that's going to be the great evidence of true faith on the day of judgment is going to be the way that we care for people. So this is a serious matter. And that's why the apostles also took this work seriously, why they didn't overlook in the end the widow's why they said, no, we need to, to fix this problem. We need to make sure that, that people are being cared for while we still maintain the centrality of the preaching of the word and the gospel. And I think that this is where in the last hundred years we've seen the church become unbalanced in different ways. I think stereotypically evangelical gospel preaching churches can focus on the, the proclamation of the word rightly to say that, that our main job is to tell people about Jesus, to teach the scriptures. 
But then there can be suspicion of the social gospel, which tries to make Christianity only about serving the poor, where often I think that there, there are groups that are in the mainline Protestant that tend to, to reject the sole authority of Scripture, who would say that, well, the main job, the only job of the church is to serve the poor. That is what we're to do. But as Christians, as biblical Christians, we don't have to, to choose between the ministry of the word and service to the poor and the weak and the marginalized, that both are the calling of the church, which is part of the reason that Christ instituted these two offices for the church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. Or as I heard John Piper put it like this, he says that Christians should be people who care about human suffering, that we care about human suffering eternally, and so we want to preach the gospel and see people brought to faith in Christ. And we care about human suffering here and now also. And so we want to meet temporal needs and care for the poor and the weak and the marginalized. Again, we care for humans as complete people. Because we're not just souls, we're bodies and souls. And God created our bodies. And so we want to care for the complete person, not forgetting the body, not forgetting the soul. And I think that this idea of this twofold calling of the church that is met by the office of elder and the office of deacon, this has implications for us both individually and implications for us corporately as the church. So let's start with individually, that this has implications because in our own lives, we're called to embody the values of both elders and deacons, even if you're not going to hold one of the formal offices within the church. That we should care, you could say, about word ministry, and we should care about deed ministry. We shouldn't sacrifice one for the other. So we're called to care about word ministry. We should read our Bibles. We should tell people about Jesus. We should seek to grow in our knowledge of God and our knowledge of theology. But we should also care about deed ministry. We should look for ways to serve people in practical ways. Now, I think that, that everybody has a, a major, uh, you could say, that, that we have, we we're both called to word ministry and deed ministry, but I think God gives some people spiritual gifts that are weighted more on the word ministry side, and he gives other people gifts that are weighted more on the deed ministry side. And so you know yourself, and, and if you know yourself to be somebody who enjoys understanding, who enjoys teaching, who enjoys the, the word ministry side, then recognize that, rejoice in that, cultivate that gift, seek to use that gift to encourage others in whatever form that might take. But if you're the person who has the, the deed ministry gifts of how to serve people in really practical ways, again, develop that. And I think that what can happen sometimes, even though we're both to we're all cultivate word and deed, is that people can become jealous of each other within the church for their different gifts. That sometimes the, the people who have the deed gifts, more of the diaconal gifting, can be envious of the people with the word giftings within the church. Because often the, the word giftings are the ones that are more public. It's the teaching. It's what, what people see up front often within the church. But the deed ministries can go unseen. It's the stuff that happens behind the scenes that somebody doesn't know about. And so people with very strong deed ministry giftings can look and say, oh, I wish that I could teach or I wish that I could pray like that in public or I wish that I was that gifted in explaining the gospel to my neighbors and I'm not good and I always get mixed up in my words. 
But then, of course, the envy can go on the other way as well, that sometimes people with the word ministry gifts say, well, I'm just an abstract person. I just care about words. But Christianity is about action. And, and I wish that I was better at, at serving people. I wish that, so I'm going to stop spending so much time studying or reading my Bible or seeking to, to teach because that doesn't really matter. I'm going to do what really matters, which is caring for the poor. Again, we don't choose, but we understand our gifting within the life of the church. So this then is that the individual application of this principle to cultivate these values within ourselves. But as we do that, we can also then reflect on the, the corporate application of this principle for us as Hope Church. That Hope Church is called to, to grow both in word ministry and in deed ministry. And I think that just as an individual might have a strength in word ministry or deed ministry. I think churches can have strengths where they tend to excel. And I think Presbyterian churches tend to be very strong on the word ministry side because of the long history of having an educated clergy, of the teaching of scripture. Uh, and that's something that we can rejoice in, this the strong tradition of, of word ministry and the centrality of preaching. But then I also think that we can often be weak indeed ministry and in, in really meeting the, the practical needs of people, not only in the church, but in our community as well. And this is an area where I believe we need to grow as a church, but also a way where we've seen fruit, where I can, we can rejoice in what God has been doing among us as a church. I don't know if some of you saw an article that uh, Debbie Gaspar uh, wrote that was posted on Hope's blog this week. Um, and John, you probably saw Jonathan's email as well. We, we post blogs from, from different folks within Hope. That'd be a good example of, of word gifting, people who are gifted writers who are sharing that gift with others within the, the church. And, and I think most of you know that, that Debbie has been going through cancer treatment. And she was just reflecting on this experience of receiving care from the church. And this is what she wrote. You can read the whole thing on our website, explorehopechurch.org. Uh, but she says... My recent experience of kind acts that showed the love of Christ was much simpler. Soup, casseroles, pastas, and desserts. I read encouraging cards, texts, emails. Phone calls reminded me of the prayers and the uh, affections that brought my situation to their minds. These were practical, thoughtful, and comforting during a stressful time. The ministry of members of Hope Presbyterian Church was on display. And that's encouraging to me as the, the pastor of Hope to see that, that somebody experienced the care of the body coming in. And, and she reflects later about how that can be hard as well to receive help. And, and so if you ever are facing a hard situation, uh, don't be afraid to ask for help from the local church. Because sometimes we can be, we, our pride can kick in. We, we want to be independent. We don't want people to know what we're facing or what we're going through. We want to seem like we can face everything ourselves. But to be able to receive help as well is a grace. And it's a way of serving others by letting them serve you as well. And it's also just noticing. If you notice a need within the church, I don't notice everything. I'm more gifted on the, the word ministry side often. And so you can help me by noticing or by pointing out where needs are, are taking place so we can come around people and serve in, in practical ways. But then also as we're seeking to grow in this deed ministry as a church, uh, we, 
uh, doubled our mercy ministry budget for the next year to really be caring for, for people not only in the church, but also in the community. And I mentioned this at our congregational meeting as well, but we're, we're hoping going into the new year to start a, a care team. Uh, and this is really just a practical way to come around people when they're facing something, uh, because right now for Hope Church, we, we have not elected deacons. We have a provisional session. And so in some ways right now, I'm kind of the, the lead elder and the lead deacon of Hope Church. Uh, and, and I can't, don't do everything well. Um, and so it's a way of when, when there is a need, say somebody needs food or they're having a baby or they, they just had surgery or they need a ride, uh, that the care team could, could meet regularly and could help coordinate and make sure that people are cared for, that people aren't overlooked in terms of the care of the church. And then eventually, Lord willing, when we elect our own elders, then those would be assistants of the deacons who could work along with the deacons and caring for those in the life of the church. So if you're interested in that, let me know. Um, and hopefully more will be coming on that in, in January. Just be praying for the life of Hope Church that we can cultivate first the, the, the practice of the diaconal ministry, that we can do a, a good job by the grace of God of caring for one another in practical ways, and then flowing out of that in the future will be the actual office of deacon in our midst. So that is then the work of the deacon. That's our, our first section today. But now let's turn again to our text or turn back to the book of 1 Timothy. And now let's think about the, the qualifications for deacons within the life of the church. And for someone to serve as a deacon... According to Paul, we should look for nine attributes, nine qualifications, nine aspects of their life. And so first, he says, look at their demeanor. He says that they must be dignified. And the, the Greek word there means worthy of respect, worthy of honor, noble, dignified, serious. The King James translates it grave, uh, which which I think is a, is a funny way to put it, uh, that you, know, you want to grave deacons and grave ministers. Uh, but there is something about that. It, do, it doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor, you can't laugh. But I think that the idea is that you're, you're taking life seriously. You're, you're taking your calling seriously. You're taking yourself seriously. You're taking your time seriously. And therefore, you're going to be taken seriously by others as well. That you're not someone who's just moving from one place to another with no foundation, that there is this gravity, this dignity to the person who would serve in this role. So that's the first thing you look for. Second, you look at his speech, his speech. It says that this should be someone who is not double-tongued. You say, well, what does double-tongued mean? And it's pretty... Evident, I think, just in the, the language, but we don't always use that terminology. But this is talking about the way that he's speaking about others. Is the person a gossip? Is he speaking true things that should be kept private? Is he a slanderous? Is he speaking false things to hurt others or to manipulate? Is he uh, using flattery, saying something that isn't true to try to manipulate somebody else? Is he insincere, speaking one thing, but meaning something else. 
And that's not the way that a deacon should be within the life of the church. So this should be a person who is committed to speaking truth and to, to guarding his mouth so that he says only what is right, only what is glorifying to God. Of course, this is true. This is important for all of us to guard our lips, to not be double-tongued. But it's especially important for a deacon within the life of the church because as a deacon, they're often aware of what's going on in people's lives, aware of their struggles, aware of even some private information of people's lives. And so if this is somebody who is a gossip or who's slanderous, well, then they can take that information and spread it around. And, and that makes people lose faith in the ministry of the church. It makes people lose faith, confidence, and even sharing their struggles. Because if you share a struggle and then suddenly everybody in the church knows about it, well, maybe then you'll be more careful about sharing next time and then people won't be cared for and the, the work of the diaconate will cease practically. And so again, you, that's the second thing. You look at his speech. But then third, you look at his drink. It says in the text that he shouldn't be addicted to much wine, that the deacon shouldn't be a drunkard. And in our context, that would apply, I think, to other addictive behaviors, not to, to drugs, not to pornography, uh, that, that the, the deacon should be someone who is enslaved to no one or nothing other than Christ Jesus, uh, that this is somebody who's in control of their faculties because it's important for them to make decisions, to always be ready to care for people within the life of the church. And so again, that's the, the third, to look at his drink. But then fourth, you should look also at his money. It says that he shouldn't be greedy for unjust gain. The Greek word means shamelessly greedy for money. And this is a hard one. I mentioned this last week in the qualifications for elders. How do you know if you're greedy? That so many other sins people know. People know if they're committing adultery generally. Uh, but do people know if they're greedy? For unjust gain, how would we discern this within ourselves? And this is what Paul gets at later in this letter in chapter 6, where it, it comes a lot to our sense of contentment with the things that God has given us. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And so it's just this, this desire to always accumulate more, to always have more, to never be content with what you have, which can overflow in all sorts of abuse of the poor, but can also flow into taking money or to, to, be, to be loose in the way that you handle money. And so that's why this is so important for everyone, for each and every one of us, to cultivate this contentment, but also important for deacons in a special way because they're collecting gifts from the church, they're distributing gifts to people who are in need. And so if there's any question of their faithfulness with money, that's going to present a problem. It could undermine the ministry of the church. So that's the fourth then, that you should look at his money. But then fifth, 
you should look also at his faith. It says that he must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so even though the, the, the work of the deacon is more of the practical service, this is saying that, that you shouldn't also ignore their faith, that they need a sincere understanding of the gospel, of the, of the work of Jesus for them. Because just a few verses down that we'll look at in verse 16, he, said, he talks about the mystery of godliness. So what is the mystery of godliness? That Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That is the mystery of godliness, and that, that the deacon should be one who holds to that, who maintains this, just like Stephen, I mentioned, the first, one of the first deacons who was martyred for his witness to the mystery of Christ. So that's the fifth thing that you should look at, the first fifth qualification. And then six, you should look also at his maturity. It says, let them, the deacons, also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So the idea here is very similar to the office of elder that we talked about, that this isn't a new convert. This is somebody who has been tested, who's used their gifts in the church, have demonstrated this, this character repeatedly within the life of the church. So it's not just somebody who just came to faith or somebody who just came into the church, but that there's been a period of testing. So that's the sixth qualification. But then seventh, you look also at his wife. It says that their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, there's, there's some debate here about whether this is talking about deaconesses, and there, and there are some churches that, have, that won't have male elders following the teaching of 1 Timothy chapter 2, but will have women as deaconesses, uh, because there's this sense that in chapter 2 of this letter, it said that women should not teach or exercise authority over men, and seeing the role of elder more as the teaching role, as the, uh, the ruling office within the church. And so there's question about how do we understand this? Uh, Phoebe in the book of Romans is called a deacon of the church. But again, there's question of whether that means that she was holding the office of deacon or whether it was using it in the broader sense of she was a servant of the church caring for the needs of the church. So there's question here. And then also there's questions about how to understand this because of the way that Greek uses the word for woman. That the word for woman used here can mean wife or can mean woman, depending on the context. And so you can actually see different translations translate this differently. That the NASB, NIV, and NRSV say women must likewise be dignified. The CSB translates it that wives likewise must be dignified. And then most translations, the ESV, King James Version, New King James Version, NET, NLT, they supply the word there. And so if you have a Bible that italicizes supplied words into the text, like the, like the King James Version or the New King James Version, you'll see that word italicized uh, because it, they're trying to help you understand what it's talking about. Their wives must be dignified. And I think that that actually is the right reading, the right understanding of this word, because that we've seen this word appear several times in this chapter. Chapter 2, it was talking about the wives of elders, that they should be the husband of one wife. Verse 12, right after this, it talks about deacons being the husband of one wife. And then verse 11 here, it talks about 
the women, the wives within the church. And so probably this word is not changing its meanings within this chapter. But then also, I think that this isn't talking about deaconesses per se uh, because of the way that Paul is using the language. Because in verse 8, he uses the word deacon, and the, the word is in a masculine form. Uh, and so it, it's talking about the male deacons within the church. Then in verse 11, he talks about the, the women and does not use the word deaconess. He could have used the word deaconess. And then in verse 12, he talks about then the deacons, again, using the masculine form of the word. And so what it seems like what Paul's getting at here is he's talking about one of the qualifications for this office of deacon is the, is the character of the wives of the deacons. And, and it's consistent even with what we saw in the book of Acts, where, where the, when they were seeking to care for the widows, the first deacons appointed in the book of Acts, laying the foundation for this office, were men in the book of Acts, chapter 6. Uh, but you say, well then, well why then is it using, why does it give a qualification for the wives? Because last week when we looked at the qualifications for elders, there was no mention of the wives. And so why is it that the wives, there's a qualification for godly wives for deacons, but maybe not for elders? It seems strange. And I think that this goes to the, to the nature of the work. It's not that the character of an elder's wife doesn't matter at all. But if you think about the, this work of a deacon, that, that his, his wife is going to be involved in serving in practical ways uh, in the life of the church, and so even if the deacon himself is not a slanderous person, that, that I mean, you know that if, if the wife probably knows what's going on as well, and that that would spread beyond. And so, so that you're getting this kind of two, you're getting the, the person, the, the deacon, and you're getting the character of the wife coming along with that. And that's why Paul is, is listing this in this list of qualifications. But then also, I think, within our own denomination, within the PCA, we have the office of elder, the office of deacon, but we also have what are called diaconal assistants who are godly men and women who work along with the elders in, in serving. It's really that idea of the care team. People are being mobilized by the deacons to serve in the congregation. Godly men, godly women. Um, and that's the desire to have godly men and women serving along, working with the, the deacons in the life of the church, meeting the needs of people. And, and, and it's just when you get a deacon, the, the wife becomes an automatic diaconal assistant as well, so the qualifications matter. So again, you look at his wife, that's the seventh. But then the eighth, flowing out of that, first, that seventh qualification, he says, you look at his fidelity to his wife. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. In other words, they're not polygamous, they're not adulterers, they're not sleeping around, they're, they're committed to their wife. And that's so important for somebody in leadership to demonstrate that fidelity and marriage, uh, because if they're not faithful to their wife, will they be faithful to anyone else? Will they execute this role in faithfulness? They will undermine the witness of the church. But the ninth, and this is finally the last qualification here, that, that this, these elders, or sorry, these deacons must manage their household well. You look at their home life. Is there prayer? Is there management of the home and the children? Because it says actually in chapter 5 of this letter, Verse 8, that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So that is 
ground zero of, of qualification for office is the way that you're caring for your family, because that will flow into the way that you care for practical needs as well in the life of the church. So that's then these, these qualifications. We went through them briefly, but I want to just say that, that these are, are relevant for us as a church that will be looking to elect elders and, and deacons in the future. But it's also important for us because this is the qualification for all of us as we seek to serve in different ways, that we should be, we, we should care for those around us. We should be d- dignified. We should be sober. We should be caring. Uh, and it starts with a relationship with Jesus and praying, Lord, please bring this forth from me to serve others around me. But then as we wrap up today, we're going to look just at the final verse. Because what we see in the final verse is then the, the promise for this office. He says that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so the first promise is good standing. You say good standing among whom? Among people? I don't think that's what it's saying. It's saying that there's good standing in the eyes of God, that, that even though it's behind the scenes, even though that it doesn't seem like you get much credit for it, even though it's not the, the glamorous kind of ministry, that it's saying that there is good standing, well done, good and faithful servant to the one who serves well. But then also it promises great confidence. And that's not confidence that's rooted in ourselves or our works, but in Christ. And, and the more that we are seeking to serve those around us, the more our confidence and the work of Christ grows. And this isn't just true for deacons, it's true for you and for me also, because, because when we are seeing the fruit of our faith, we're thinking, wow, I've ne- I didn't know I could love somebody sacrificially. I know that I'm not surprised when I'm out for my own self, but when I'm actually willing to serve others, that can only be a work of grace within me. And so it gives us confidence of the, the fruit that is coming forth. But then also this confidence looking to Jesus, because he's the ultimate deacon. He is the one who came to serve first and foremost. And in his ministry, he preached the word. He fulfilled the role of the elder, but also he met practical needs. He healed, he fed people, he cared for people, he carried out real practical care. And that's why he tells his disciples in John chapter 13, he says that you call me teacher and you are right, for so I am. So there's the teaching, the word ministry. But if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done. That the calling is to to be served by Christ, to experience his washing, his power in our lives, and then to look for practical ways to serve, flowing out of that caring for the weak and the marginalized in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this work of the deacon. We thank you for the, the office, the, for the twofold calling of the church to, to preach the word and to also to, to serve and to care for the needs of people in practical ways. And so, Father, we pray that, that you would work the, the character that we see, the qualifications here in all of us. And we pray, Father, that, that we would all have the heart to, to serve and and to see when somebody needs something and to be able to, to reach out, to show hospitality, to, to, to reach out in, in even what seem like mundane, ordinary ways. And Father, we, we pray that we can cultivate this as a church today in our life. We, 
We pray that we can be a church that serves each other well, serves our neighbors well. And we pray that flowing out of that, that you would raise up elders in our church, ruling elders. But we also pray that you would raise up deacons in this church and that they would be um, godly deacons who meet the qualifications of this text, who um, as they lead can mobilize the whole church to be engaged in service, following the pattern of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we pray in his name. Amen.